If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we will come to it uh, a bit later in the sermon. Today we continue in our series on a kingdom worldview as we consider what our basic assumptions about reality are to be or what they should be if we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Sadly, I think we may have our citizenship in heaven, but our thinking is very much like that of the surrounding culture. As we've seen, a worldview is not so much a conscious philosophy of life, but it is, in fact, a set of intuitions, of practices. What I've done is I have followed the lead of others and having a series of questions that if we answer these questions, we have the framework of a worldview. Thus far, we've looked at seven questions. What is first cause? What is the nature of reality? What is a human being? What happens after death? What is the basis of morality? What is the nature of evil? And last Sunday, we looked at what is the nature of knowing? That is the question of epistemology. Today, we come to the eighth question, and that is, what is the place of culture? This may not seem like an appropriate topic for a sermon on a Sunday morning. Um, I beg your indulgence. I think it is absolutely crucial. Usually, traditionally, when you use the word culture, uh, here's a, a formal definition. It is a complex interlocking network of symbols, practices, and beliefs at the heart of a society's life. Anthropologists in the early part of the 20th century saw culture as an inherited way of life uh, by a particular people, and it makes particular demands on them. The definition I like best is a simple one, is the way we do things here. That is to say, a culture says, do this and don't do that, because you are a member of this society or of this culture. A culture defines good and evil according to its own traditions. And oftentimes, it defines itself in opposition to others. We are not like them. This is who we are. But for many people today, culture means habits or practices, customs, rules um, that belong to a particular group of people uh, in a particular setting, but you don't have to have any formal ties, any official ties. You can just, you just sort of, I'm, I'm part of that culture, but uh, yeah, I, I don't belong to anything or to anyone. And the issue that is missing, which is central to culture, is authority. A culture makes demands. If you are part of a given society, of a village, a town, of a, a clan, um, you do things a particular way. You submit to the authority of that culture or of those people. Um, you surrender to the norms of that culture. I would submit that centuries ago that might have been a lot easier than it is today because due to travel, technology, and more, we are exposed to a variety of cultures. And thus we find the rise of multiculturalism in which various cultures coexist. And in fact, in individuals, where you have an individual who may in fact have more than one culture, particularly as we are a country uh, of immigrants. Um, 
Nothing wrong with that. But what happens is the individual then chooses which aspect of a given culture he or she will choose to follow. Um, I was raised in the Philippines. and so there's a, a Filipino aspect to the culture I have. But I was raised in the mountains with a cultural minority, but we spoke the language of the lowlanders. And it, it gets a bit confusing after a while. And so I have to make a choice which aspect of which culture am I going to follow. Again, I don't know that there's anything wrong with that. But in the process, we lose the key that is authority. Because I become the authority, I decide which part of a culture I'm going to follow. And what you have is a shift from multiculturalism to post-culturalism, and then finally to something that one scholar has called autoculturalism. I will make up my own culture. I will be a culture to myself. And if there's nothing else about this that is wrong, it is that it is a total rejection of authority. I become the supreme authority. So you can move from having one culture to having multiple cultures to simply having a culture that you decide is the one you're going to follow. This is society in which we, the people of God, live. And so I think it really is important for us to ask and answer the question, what is the nature of culture to those who are a part of the kingdom? What is the nature of culture in a kingdom worldview? The church has responded in a number of ways through the centuries, and some of them okay, but some of them dangerous. So uh, on the one hand, there is the embracing of the surrounding culture, which in itself is not necessarily dangerous. At any given point in time, God's people have lived within a particular cultural context. Um, and that includes something as basic as clothing, wearing the clothing that is in a, in, at style or in style at a particular time. The danger comes when the surrounding culture is embraced uncritically, without discernment. Another way that the church has responded is to reject culture, the surrounding culture. Recognizing that the world in which we live is in rebellion against the creator, it's reasonable that there are certain things in the surrounding culture which, in fact, should be rejected. We'll come to this in a bit. But the danger comes when rejecting the surrounding culture becomes sort of absolute. Like anything the world does, we, in fact, cannot do that. And I remember something that happened a long time ago, 50 years ago, in fact, at a youth camp. Um, This was in the Philippines, where I grew up. And there was a question and answer, Q&A time with the pastors. I think I've probably told you this story before. And uh, one of the questions was, Pastor, is it okay to have sideburns? You have to know the time, you know, that that would be an issue. And one of the pastors responded, no, it is not permitted. Why? Because Tom Jones has sideburns. To which another pastor retorted, yeah, he wears pants too. You know, at what, you can't do this total rejection of the surrounding culture. What ends up happening is you pick and choose, and then the issue of authority comes in once again. The third response on the part of the church has been to create a culture of its own apart from the world. This is often called legalism, that we will decide what is right and what is wrong. 
That is, to be accepted into the community of faith of which you are a part, you have to follow the rules, the cultural dictates of that particular group. This is also wrong, and we'll see more on this in a bit. To begin to answer the question, what is the nature of culture in a kingdom worldview, we need to go back to Genesis. Seems inevitable to go back to the beginning. We saw this in answering the question, what is the nature of evil? The three events that illustrated the nature of evil found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Human rebellion, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Human wickedness, and so God destroyed the world with a flood. And then you had human arrogance in which they're going to build a tower that reaches up to the heavens. Um, this is the problem with humanity, and the solution is the call of this man named Abram, later to be called Abraham. He is the solution. But if you read the story of Abraham and his descendants, they seem to be more like the problem than the solution. The story goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to his 12 sons, who then go down into Egypt because of the famine. And that's the end of Genesis. When we come to Exodus, we find some four centuries later, the children of Israel have multiplied greatly, but now they have been enslaved. After four centuries of slavery, they are led out by Moses at God's command. God sent him to free his people. This event is known as the Exodus. It is the redemptive event of the Old Testament. He delivers them. And what, did, what does he do? He leads them to Mount Sinai. And why do they go to Sinai? To receive the law and to receive a new culture. We saw in our study of Ezekiel that the Israelites, in fact, had embraced Egyptian culture, including worship of idols. Let me read to you from, uh, from Ezekiel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I chose Israel, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of the house of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. With uplifted hand, I said to them, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. And I said to them, each of you, get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. But for the sake of my name, I did, not, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations they lived among and whose sight I revealed myself to Israelites by bringing them out of Egypt. What we find is that they, in fact, had embraced Egyptian culture. They're not worshiping the true God. We may think of, oh, the poor Israelites... They're such a good, faithful people worshiping God and they're being enslaved. No, they had totally bought into Egyptian culture and their religious system. The Lord told them to put this away and they did not. And so the Lord considered, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to deliver them or am I going to destroy them? But in his grace, he chose to deliver them graciously. And then he takes them to Sinai. Here is a people who have embraced a culture that is not what God wants. It is a culture of slavery. 
but more than that, it is a pagan culture, that of the Egyptians. So what God does is he gives them the law and the culture. Cultural anthropologists speak of core values and surface values. This is something I teach on in my class. Core values are how people think. This is the intangible, the invisible, what you cannot see. The surface values are the things you can see. They are the workings out of the core values. The core values re represent the internal, the surface values, the external. It is in the Ten Commandments that we find the core, the core values upon which the surface values are based. If you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you find all these various laws which can put, be put into categories such as civil laws, ceremonial laws, but they are expressions, they are surface, they are visible expressions of the core value of the Ten Commandments. One could argue, and by the way, in our prayer of confession, we use the Ten Commandments today. One could argue that the Ten Commandments deal with external acts. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. And if that's the case, then, Damon, they're more like surface and not core values. But in Romans 7, Paul does something that is fascinating. He's talking about the law in the life of the believer. And... You know, some people are saying, Paul, it seems like the law is really a bad thing. And this is what he writes. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Do not covet. It's the tenth. It's the final of the Ten Commandments. Paul quotes it as saying, do not covet. Even though it is the last commandment, I would argue that it is the commandment that underlines and underlies all the other nine. Before you break any of the first nine commandments, you break the tenth. You covet. Okay? So when you steal, it's because you covet. That seems obvious. Um, but when you do not honor your parents, and we saw in our prayer of confession, we do not want to submit to authority. When we do not, when we take the Lord's name in vain or we do not uh, consider him the only God, it's because we covet, we want to have other gods. So one covets before one breaks the other commandments. You know, of all, of all the laws Paul could have used, it's just fascinating to me that he chooses the tenth one, and I think it's for that reason. There is an internal violation before there is an external action. We hear this, by the way, here in Matthew chapter 5. If you look at verse number 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, external act, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anger begins in the heart. It may have certain expressions, but it begins internally. And then verse number 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. External act. Okay. 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think we get thrown by the word lustfully. Um, The contemporary English version says, but I tell you that if you look at another woman and want her, you are already unfaithful in your thoughts. This is coveting. This is where it begins. So we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' listeners are Jewish. He was as well. He shared their history. It's seen in the genealogy. He ate the same food that they did. He shared a vocabulary with them, not only in terms of language, but in terms of culture. What Je- when Jesus says, blessed are, the people already have a certain understanding. It means having God's favor. And by God, they know him to be the creator, the sustainer of all things, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they were thinking purely in terms of externals, surface values, and they had neglected what was internal, what was in the heart. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18, which I think points to this difference. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, I would say external, and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. These are all external. I'm not like these people. I do these things. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, you might argue and say, Damon, the tax collector saw himself as a sinner because of the things that he had done, external actions. Jesus saw him as someone who humbled himself. Jesus focused on the core values and sought to move his listeners away from a purely cultural understanding of what Moses had given them to a moral understanding, the core values as found in the Ten Commandments. In Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, in Mark 7, we read, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. And then Mark writes, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So all the dietary laws that were given to Moses, they're now set aside. These are surface values. These are cultural values, and they are set aside. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. 
Again, it is the internal. It is the drive, the motivating thing. It's what is inside of us. It's our core values that find expression in external actions. But what I wanted you to see is that Jesus set aside the cultural norms, the dietary laws. You can't eat pork, for example. That's set aside. Jesus sets it aside. There are now no unclean foods. In the book of Acts, we find that the good news of the kingdom began being preached to Jews. But then it is shared with Gentiles. Um, In Antioch, Syria, there is a thriving congregation made up of believing Gentiles. By the way, we are told in Acts 11.26, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. These Gentile believers, they're the ones who were first called Christians. It's where Paul and Barnabas taught for a time. Um, Later we read that uh, Paul and Barnabas are set aside to go on a missionary journey. Uh, Lost my thought there for a minute, but it's interesting that Jesus sets apart the dietary laws the gospel is preached to the Gentiles, and Peter's like, yeah, I'm not so sure about this. And it takes a series of visions for him to realize, God speaks to him, that we should not call anything unclean that God has, in fact, redeemed. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them. And so they go out. The Antioch church sends them out. The first missionaries are sent out. And a pattern emerges. They go to synagogues where the Jews are and they preach the good news there. This is where Jews and there are some Gentiles, God-fearers or proselytes are present. Invariably, they are driven out. This This is contrary to what Moses taught us and they're driven out. So then they preach exclusively to the Gentiles, many of whom receive the gospel and are baptized. Paul and Barnabas are persecuted by the unbelieving Jews and they're forced to go to the next town. And you find this repeated. They go to the synagogue, they preach. Some people like it, most of them don't. They drive them out, they preach to the Gentiles. And then later on, we find that there are so-called believing Jews out of Jerusalem who follow Paul's path. And then they say to the, Jew, uh, the Gentile believers, this is great. You have received the Jewish good news, the gospel, because Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish, so you've received the Jewish good news. But there's something missing. You now need to embrace Jewish culture. You need to be circumcised. You need to eat only the the foods that are prescribed in the Old Testament and in Mosaic law. This caused a lot of problems. And it, in fact, resulted in a church council. People from all over come to Jerusalem, um, and they, dis- they talk about these things. Um, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the laws of Moses. In other words, this is great, they're saved, But they need to do what makes us Jewish. They need to accept our cultural values, the surface values. And it was decided this was wrong. Peter told the council, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they. It's the heart that has been changed. 
And so it's decided they're going to send a letter to the Gentile believers because some of them are deeply upset about this. Um, the apostles and elders, your brothers to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meat, the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. I would argue that the four things that the Gentile believers are to refrain from are not surface values. They are, in fact, core values. Paul dealt with the issue of meat offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, and 11. Uh, not 11, 8, 9, and 10. Um, after the flood, this is way before Abraham, okay, and certainly way before Moses and Sinai, um, Noah is told, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. So stay away from blood and meat that has been strangled. Okay? And then sexual immorality is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. So there, issue settled. Right? No, it's not. The problem continues. The book of Galatians was written to Gentile believers who had been led astray by Jewish believers, and perhaps I should do air quotes, believers, um, who told them to follow the law, the culture of the Jewish people. Paul wrote the book of Romans to the church there, made up of Jewish and Gentile believers. And apparently there are some Jewish slash Gentile issues. Um, and if you doubt that, just read chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul deals with the Jewish issue. Okay. In Romans 14, he deals with dietary laws and calendrical, the calendar matters, what you can and cannot eat, and are certain days better than others, more sacred than others. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on dis disputable manners. The ESV, by the way, has opinions. I think I like that better. This is, these are the surface things, okay? One man's faith allows him to eat everything. But another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live in the Lord. And if we die, we die in the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. So are you going to be vegetarian? Are you going to be vegan? That's cool. Are you going to eat meat? 
that's fine. These are surface issues. These are cultural issues. These are not core value issues. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul said, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. In 1 Corinthians 10, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So now we come to the issue, is there such a thing as a Christian culture? We see that there was, in fact, a Jewish culture imposed by God. But now that Jesus has come into the world, it has been set aside. But there are some Jews who are hanging on for dear life who are trying to impose it on Gentiles. Um, But is there such a thing as Christian culture? A yes and no. Let's start with the no first. Think in terms of past, present, and future. I would argue that there is no one culture that every Christian of any time in any place is to follow. That is to say, there is no one style of clothing that Christians, in fact, must follow. We do see this among the Amish and the Mennonites, uh, among Hasidic Jews. Um, But I would argue that there is no one style of clothing that is Christian. There's no one kind of music that is Christian. No one type of food, uh, recipes, architecture, political systems. Um, I remember, and again, this is decades ago when I was in Bible college, there were strict rules about men's hair. Interestingly enough, not about women's hair. Um, No facial hair, except you could have a mustache as long as it didn't go past the corners of your mouth. Um, And during that time, a book came out called The Christian Hall of Fame with pictures and brief biographies of men in the past. And I went through it and I noticed that fewer than 10% of these individuals would have been accepted into this college because either they had facial hair or they had long hair. Um, They lived in different times. They're different cultures, different standards. Um, Styles change. In the present, let's talk about the present. If you and I could get on a plane today and travel around the world and visit visit various Christian congregations and visit Christians in every country that we went to, would we expect their services to be just like ours? Would we expect them to look just like us? Would we expect that everything they did would be what we do, the way we do things here? Would we expect them to sing the same hymns? Would we expect their prayers to be like ours? There are certain things that are true. We pray through Jesus in his name. But do we expect them to do things the way that we do things? I don't think so. Let's look to the future. I said I believe that every generation and every place has its own culture. We should acknowledge that. Imagine what the church will look like if the Lord doesn't come back in 50 years. Um, I won't be here, some of you may be, but what will it look like then? Do we have the expectation that it will look like what we are doing today, the way we do things here? I hope not. Because there is no one way to do things. There is no Christian culture as such. 
Some things may be retained, certain traditions. Some of the hymns we sang today, uh, Jesus, Lover, My Soul, from Charles Wesley in the 18th century. Maybe they'll still be singing that 50 years from now, but maybe not. There's nothing that says they have to sing these particular hymns. So that's the no. No, there is no Christian culture. What about the yes? I'm arguing that culture is the surface value, the things that are external that can, in fact, be observed. And Christian culture is that which is in line with the core values of the kingdom. And what are those values? I've read this passage, I think, more than once in this series from Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the core value. God's people are to love the Lord our God and we are to love our neighbors ourselves. In Romans 13, Paul wrote, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. It's the core value. And then later, a couple verses later, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the core value that leads to obedience, obedience to God's commands. In the Ten Commandments, the first four deal with our relationship with God. The second six deal with our relationship with our fellow man. As one person has put it, we are to love the Lord our God enough to be content, and we are to love our neighbor enough not to covet. Our love for God and for our neighbor can be expressed in a variety of ways, with different cultural expressions. Love is multifaceted like a diamond. It isn't just a flat surface and everybody has to do, they have to do it the way it's always been done. And one of the biggest complaints if a church makes any, any changes is, yeah, we didn't used to do it that way. Yeah, well, the way we dress now is not the way that they dressed 500 years ago. Cultures change. Some of the facets, by the way, are found in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This will always be true. These are core values. We are always to recognize our poverty. We are always to be meek. We are always to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, Jesus tells us, We are to be content. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. It's a pagan culture to run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these these things will be given to you as well. 
For me to tell you today that the core value, the internal drive is love, sounds rather simplistic. Are we going to all break out into all you need is love? Start singing together. No, we need to go back to the first question in this series on a kingdom worldview. What is first cause? First cause must be personal. It is a personal God. Personal first cause with personal agency. God created out of love rather than will or rationale. In the life of the triune God, the God we worship, the Father gives himself freely to the Son, and the Son to the Spirit, and the Spirit to the Father, the Father to the Spirit. And you have this this giving and receiving within the Trinity. And this giving and receiving we call life. We also call it love. We live in a broken world, though. And giving and receiving has been replaced by taking and keeping. That is the cultural. Actually, I'm not sure that that's a cultural value. That may, in fact, be the core value of the surrounding culture. (coughs) Take it and keep it. This is mine. I possess it. But we are made in the image of God. And now God, by his grace, has redeemed us. He is reshaping us. And by his grace, changing our core values from that of the surrounding culture. And instead of taking and keeping, we are now to be giving and receiving. Kingdom culture is to be based on love. Love that is found in the infinite personal God. It is to be demonstrated in giving and receiving and it is to be seen in beauty. God saw what he had created and saw that it was very good. And we who are made in his image, who are now being redeemed and reshaped in the image of Christ, as we do cultural things, like cooking, the clothes we wear, um, those among you who are artistic, music, writing, teaching, Whatever it is, there's to be a beauty about it because it is a reflection of the one who created all things. We are his image bearers. That is the culture that we are to embrace. The specifics of it may change over time. Things change. Certain things are in style that didn't used to be in style. But then it may come back around later on. If you've lived long enough, you see that happening. The things that used to be in fashion went out of fashion and and now they're back in fashion again. That's life. And as God's people, that's fine. We can, in fact, we're not going to say, listen, I'm a Christian. I'm going to dress the way they dressed back in the time of Jesus. Or I'm going to dress the way they did during the time of the Reformation. I will dress what is appropriate in the culture in which I live. But by God's grace, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, I will be motivated, I will be led by love. I'm to love God enough to be content, I'm to love my neighbor enough not to covet. By God's grace to be light in a world of darkness. Let's pray together. (coughs) 
Our Father in truth, these are things that we don't normally think about. We simply go with the flow. Or we are reactionary. Like we, we can't do that because that's what unbelievers do. We lack discernment. But above all, we, we simply lack love. We're so used to taking and keeping, not giving and receiving. A lot has been said here today. I ask in your grace that which is profitable, you would cause us to remember and to set aside the other stuff. May we as your people be lights in a world of darkness, salt in a world of decay. Not because of our surface values, our cultural values, but because of what drives us. It's the love of Christ. A value that causes us to humble ourselves as Jesus did that has us having the mind of Christ. This is the way we're supposed to think, but we are fallen. We don't always think the way that we should. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts, I pray. And in the end, may we not be simply hearers of the word, but doers as well. I thank you for bringing us together on this first day of a new week. May your spirit and grace go with us as we leave this place. Again, I thank you for the peace that you have given to us. For all the difficulties, we rest in you. For those who march for the unborn, give them grace. For those who march for freedom, give them grace as well. I thank you for your love. Your great, great love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.